0: Thank you for those songs, Jake. So we're going to be in uh, Matthew 4. uh, Second verse of that song, Because of He Loves, to Jesus I cling. Life's a wonderful thing. Um, With the lesson last week, you know, I I gave that lesson because I've been thinking a lot about the principles of that sermon, and it's continued to stick with me. Um, That idea of... You know, being rooted in the reality of Jesus, how important it is that amidst everything else that we may study or talk about, you know, no matter what we, we may endure, um, that everything ultimately is meant to revolve around Jesus, our devotion to him, our love for him. And so the last two sermons that I have this year, there's this week and then next, next week will be the last sermons of the year, I want to um, talk about Jesus' ministry from its beginning to end. Um, mainly the beginning of his ministry, how it began, and then how his ministry ended with his death. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and looking at Jesus' wilderness wandering. So this this lesson also has been on my mind for a long time, and I've wanted to talk about Matthew 4, 1 through 11 uh, because of our study book of Numbers as well. Whenever we see Israel wandering in the wilderness um especially in that 40-year period when they're actually like moving from one place to another it's usually stories of failure where israel complains they turn against god they've got to be punished and judged and so we have that side of things where we see lessons from failure but here with jesus we're seeing lessons from victory and success in his time in the wilderness and i want you to think as well um Just as something to to be thinking about as we get into Matthew chapter 4. What are the most important values to learn to cultivate in this life? Like, what are the most important values to teach your children? You know, and obviously, personally, what are the most important values for you to learn to cultivate, priorities to cultivate? Um, What are the most important skills that a person can possibly learn to develop? Imagine asking Jesus these questions. Imagine sitting down with Jesus And asking him, Jesus, what are the most important values I can learn to cultivate in this life? What are the most important priorities and skills I can develop? What do you think he would say? How do you think he would answer that question? And I think when we see him in the wilderness, we are seeing the kind of values that Jesus spent his life cultivating. We see the priorities he spent his life building. We see the skills that he had devoted himself to developing. And so I think if you were to ask Jesus, what are the most important things for us to learn in this life, this is, I think, in a very big way, where we would go to find the answer. I want you to think as well, what are the greatest achievements ever accomplished? You know, you may think about sports. What are the greatest moments in the sport that you enjoy watching? Maybe like the best, the best moment in football, Um, the greatest achievement anyone ever got to in football in their career, or basketball, or whatever it may be. You know, those things tend to be remembered, they're studied, uh, they're replayed, and people especially who are invested in the sport and play the sport, they'll watch videos in slow motion, coaches will talk through it and try to help you get to the point of being able to do those things. And I want you to think, what are the most important inventions that ever were brought into the world? You know, we owe a whole lot to the invention of electricity, and because of electricity, so much about the world changed forever. Now, Jesus' death is obviously the most important thing about the culmination of his ministry. But I would argue that what we see in the wilderness, it's, it's so easy to, to breeze over this and not realize the victory that Jesus won, the skills he was making available, what he was making available to be utilized, that in this bigger battle between God and Satan and where we're involved, what Jesus did with Satan here in the wilderness is one of the greatest victories ever won. One of the things that history itself was working towards from the very beginning and that what Jesus made available for us to utilize in our relationship with God, the the success that he gives us, the tools he gives us, it changes and continues to impact our lives today. Um, So I just say all those things that we can appreciate a section of Jesus' life that I think is very easy to read over and, you know, of course he did it this way, of course these things happen that way. It's very brief, but I, I think we just really need to appreciate the significance of what really happened here. So we're going to start by kind of working our way into chapter four by summarizing some things that happened at the end of chapter three and seeing how relevant they are. At the end of chapter three, Jesus is baptized by John and John tries to prevent him. He says, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me verse 15 Jesus responds by saying permit it at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and he permitted him and then as Jesus is baptized God testifies to his identity in a very vivid way with God's voice coming from the heavens as the heavens are opened this is my son in whom I am well pleased and the spirit descends like a dove as a dove and lights on him all of this is is very vivid But how this relates to um, his time in the wilderness is his ministry begins with very extreme submission and association. I think there's a few things that are important here. Um, As Jesus is baptized and then led out into the wilderness, this is like Moses, where at the beginning of Moses' ministry with Israel, Deuteronomy 9.9 conveys that Moses, before he received the Ten Commandments, he spent 40 days on Mount Sinai with God, not eating or drinking. I think there's some miraculous things involved in that. Um, So Jesus was away in the wilderness 40 days. And then after this period of time, he goes out bringing God's law, his new law, his kingdom, right? Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And after that 40 years, what did they do? They went out conquering the place where the kingdom was to be established. And again, What does Jesus do in verse 17 after he comes out of the wilderness? Chapter 4, verse 17. He begins pronouncing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, as he's baptized, is associating with figures and events in the past. But I think also he's associating himself in his baptism with those baptized by John. I don't know if you're like me and you've read Jesus is being baptized and then he says, This is how we fulfill all righteousness and been kind of confused what that means, why he was baptized. Because, I mean, you remember who the baptism was for, right? It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus need to repent or receive forgiveness of sins? And I would argue in verse 15 that righteousness is not just an outward action, that Jesus isn't just doing it because that's what people are doing and therefore He needs to do it too because everybody else is being baptized by John, and so he's not exempt. And I think he is showing he's not exempt. But I just want to put forward that when somebody is convicted to the point of repentance and being baptized, that is just a first step into the bigger path, the bigger just arena of humility that God possesses that Jesus' humility for people to be baptized by John, repenting and being convicted of their sin, they were just beginning to enter into the humility that Jesus himself had. Just like we talked about in Job, Jesus foremost put himself in the lowest place. And so when Jesus is baptized by John, I don't think it's just an outward action of being baptized, but an attitude he truly was associating himself in innocence with everybody baptized by John. Everything Jesus was doing was associating him with people in the past, Israel, through their history, but also the sinners, the tax collectors, the lowly, who are being baptized by John. And then in chapter 4, 1 and 2, notice that it's the spirit that leads Jesus to the wilderness. So this isn't just Jesus taking a journey. He's not just traveling somewhere of his own will. But as a reader, we know, as Jesus did, that God Himself is deliberately leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I put on the board uh, to contrast this to six thirteen. It's just it's kind of interesting that in chapter six in the model prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, "Lead us not into temptation," and yet Jesus was led into temptation. Again, where Jesus is not exempting Himself from anything that we endure. So he's led into a place of extreme, prolonged suffering and temptation. And I think we need to appreciate in verse 2, when he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I think that's, it's fair, but it seems like an understatement, right? I'm imagining that Jesus wasn't being saved from the experience of hunger through the fasting. Uh, Again, just something to put into your minds. Were Jesus's privileges as the Son of God so that he wouldn't suffer as much as we do or that so or so that he would suffer more than we do. So I would argue that Jesus' privileges as the Son of God were to equip him to endure to an extreme that is actually hard to really fathom or imagine. So I say that to say that Jesus, after this 40 days, I imagine he's on his last threads of life. Remember from the scripture reading in verse 11, Jesus didn't go back to town. Get some bread and eat with his family. I think in verse 11, the implication is he was about to drop dead where he was standing. I mean, it was like his last threads of life. If the angels didn't come, he was not going to make it back to his city. There was no way he was going to be able to feed himself. So, this is it, right? So, again, I just want us to appreciate he's not just a little hungry, he's not being rescued from the depravity of what he hasn't eaten. He is suffering to an extreme. And I imagine when it says he became hungry, He was about to die if he did not get food. And this is when Satan comes to him. Now note also um, the tempter was going to come in verse 3. And I want us to appreciate this too. Jesus answers so frankly and so successfully that I think it looks easy or easier than it really was. And here's something that I have not kept in mind. Do you think Satan had been studying Jesus I mean, I imagine Satan doesn't like forget things like human beings do, right? Satan saw the way Jesus was born. He saw his childhood. He studied his childhood, his teenage years, his 20s. In Ephesians chapter 6, Satan is described as a schemer, that he schemes things against God's people. So the way that I imagine this is Satan has studied Jesus' life. He has studied his decisions. He knows who he is. And what Satan is trying to bring out are the most cunning and subtle temptations he could possibly come up with. And if we appreciate that, it elevates, I think, Jesus' responses and his character as on his last threads of life in extreme hunger, he still was able to very frankly, very fully deal with temptation even in that condition. So verses 3 through 4 with Jesus' dependence. I want to read verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4 rather, and then we'll get more into the point. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what is the temptation here? Jesus is obviously extremely hungry, and Satan called the tempter... Tells him to turn stones into bread. And I want you to think, is it wrong to eat bread? You know, it's not wrong to eat bread. And is there any, like, law of Moses that would tell him that this is sinful or forbidden, the situation? There's none of those things. And Satan, in all of these temptations, doesn't bring up a law from Moses. Because I think what Satan has realized is the law Jesus is abiding in is a higher law. It is a law of faith, of total dependence on the Father. That is both the law he is living by and it is also the law he would train others to live by, the highest possible law. So what is the temptation? Obviously, Satan's the one telling him to do this. So we know that, like, fundamentally, because Satan is saying it, that just kind of makes it wrong, period, right? But I think if we're to clarify, like, what is it that would make this a temptation, here's a few things. Number one, to prioritize the physical and the immediate rather than the spiritual and the eternal. Was God going to feed Jesus? Was he going to survive his time in the wilderness? And was there a way to endure this God's way without acting independently from God's character? In verse 11, Jesus was going to be fed, even miraculously. God was going to make sure that Jesus was taken care of. But I mean, how does it seem in the moment? I think there's a lot to learn in the fact that Satan tempts Jesus based on a very intense, very urgent physical craving. I think there's a lot of things that we can relate to with that. I think there's a lot of things where Satan may take cravings we have that can be good in the right context but they can be twisted very selfishly and become something that is very ungodly and so one of the ways that we know that satan works from this account is satan tries to tempt us tempt us to prioritize the physical and the immediate and to treat those things as more important than remembering the spiritual and the eternal jesus would never forget the more important aspects of his mission god's love or God's will, or his word. And it twists the purpose of the privileges of who he is as God's son. You'll notice in verse 4, or rather verse 3, he says, if you are the son of God. Now mind you, God just said outright, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan saw that, Jesus heard that, that was very vivid, very Tangibly experiential. This wasn't just something from the Old Testament that was said prophetically. God literally said this out loud to be heard. So why would would he say this? And I think it's a matter of twisting the privileges that Jesus had. Was Jesus privileged? I would say yes. What were those privileges for? How were they to be used? And I think we see that borne out through his life. Jesus was privileged, but it wasn't to exempt him from suffering. It wasn't to serve self. It was all to serve others. Because think about it. Did Jesus ever make food miraculously? Bread even? He did. Twice. At one point, he fed 5,000 people miraculously. Another time, he fed 4,000 people. Again, miraculously. He made bread. I mean, he started with a little bit, but it just kept appearing miraculously, right? But was, Je- was Jesus doing that and utilizing that power for self or to serve others? Every privilege Jesus had, he used it to serve others, not for self. Jesus had miraculous abilities, no doubt. He could do incredible things. Never once, never did Jesus ever use those things for the relief and the service of self. Everything Jesus had God had intended it to be given for service, and that's exactly how he used those things. And with that, I think it would tempt Jesus, even if it was beyond the moment, to plant a seed that he could use what he had for for selfish purposes, even in the most subtle or private manner. I could imagine the temptation, even if this didn't cross Jesus' mind. It's just something I can imagine that as he's in the wilderness, it's just him and Satan, I can imagine Jesus thinking, God, you don't need to record this part, right? Just glaze over this moment. Everything else, you know, I'll serve you, but for this moment, I'm about to die, and I can make bread, and we both know I need this, right? Right? And so you imagine the temptation is, nobody's around, this isn't a part of my ministry, it's been 40 days, I'm in the wilderness all by myself, nobody needs to know about this. But what we find out about Jesus is even when pushed to the absolute limit, both here and when he was suffering on the cross, Jesus would never act from selfish motive, no matter how minute or subtle it may seem. Philippians 2.3, Jesus lived this reality. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. To Jesus, that wasn't a light switch that he would turn on and off sometimes. It was the reality that he would never leave. Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. It starts with God. Jesus put God's interests ahead of his own, again, even in the most subtle and private ways. So, Jesus quotes scripture in verse 4. Everything he quotes is from Deuteronomy, and ironically, a particular section of Deuteronomy where Moses is reflecting on lessons that God was teaching Israel in the wilderness. And what were they supposed to be learning as they were in the wilderness those 40 years? And very conveniently, these things do directly apply, even in terms of bread. So notice in verse 4, the quote is, man shall not live on bread alone. Satan is tempting Jesus to make bread, and Jesus' response is, God was teaching Israel, he will take care of them. Even when it seems like they're not being provided for from their perspective, God is trying to teach them values, priorities, skills, with the word of God, Jesus treated God's word unlike anybody else ever had. Jesus saw a utility with God's word that nobody else had ever seen. I, I just can't imagine that this obscure verse from Deuteronomy that anybody had ever seen the value of this little verse tucked away in Deuteronomy that now we have in this pivotal, victorious moment in Jesus's ministry. Um, Jesus learned the lesson. The value of God's priorities, the value of his word, is more important than food. The spiritual and the eternal take precedence over the physical and the immediate, always. Let's look at uh, 5 through 7, the second temptation. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So with the first temptation, I think we see Jesus' dependence. Here we see Jesus' confidence in God. So Satan is very subtle in this, right? He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and this would be the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, which, mind you, was a public place. I don't think anybody, you know, saw him up there, but I think they could have if he would have done what Satan was saying. Anyway, he goes to the pinnacle of the temple. Satan tells him to throw himself down because of a scripture. And I think it's very fair to say that in verse 4, Jesus brings up scripture, and so Satan right back says, okay, so here's some scripture then, if we're talking about scripture and keeping it. Psalm 91 really does say these things. Satan is not rewording it like he did in Genesis 3. You remember when God said, you will surely die? Satan said, you will not surely die. So he added something in, he kind of changed it. There's no changing here. He quotes it exactly as it's written, and it's his platform. He literally adds this temptation in verse 6 with the scripture. So what do you do with that? And what's the temptation? I think first of all, in Psalm 91, these promises, which are very physical, again, the Psalm does say, he will command his angels concerning you, meaning God's angels are going to take care of you. And it really does say on their hands, they're going to bear you up so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. It it sounds like you fall down and you're going to get critically injured and the angels are going to rescue you and make sure you suffer no injury. Throughout the Old Testament, again and again, to make spiritual points, there are physical illustrations used to promote spiritual lessons. Think about the book of Proverbs. Proverbs says again and again and again, great wealth is in the house of the righteous, and the value of wisdom is like silver and gold. Does that mean that we serve God in righteousness and we're just going to get super, super wealthy because of it? Or take, for instance, in John, when Jesus says, ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. What do you think about when Jesus says something like that? Is it physical things that he's meaning? You know, ask for a new car, new house, better income, and God, like a genie, is just, he's on it. He'll answer your request. Jesus understood the point of scripture, right? That Psalm 91 is a very vivid, yes, very physical picture, but ultimately the psalmist is trying to prove a spiritual point with physical illustrations. One more. For John the Baptist's ministry, Luke, especially in Luke chapter 3, quotes a longer prophecy in Isaiah about John the Baptist. It says that the mountains would be brought low. The ravines would be filled and it's like the, the chasms and the canyons would be brought up and everything would be made physically level. Did that ever happen? When John the Baptist came preaching, was there an environmental change that dramatically, you know, changed the mountains and the valleys and the ravines? No, it didn't. Because it, ultimately Isaiah was making a spiritual, spiritual point through physical illustrations. It says a lot about us if we're disappointed by that, (laughs) if we're like, well, I wish it was the physical thing, I wish it was the tangible thing, not realizing that the higher, more valuable, more costly, more incredible thing is the spiritual, which is why we need the physical illustrations because we don't appreciate enough the spiritual reality of what God has done, is doing, and promises. So again, Jesus with Psalm 91 Was God caring for Jesus? Look at verse 11. Were the angels going to bear him up? Were angels going to step in and rescue him? Yes. So in a sense, the psalm was fulfilled, but not in a selfish or prideful or self-seeking way. And I think it's to seek assurance by self-exaltation and disregard of God. Again, the temptation, not how Jesus thought about the situation. Um, Imagine for a moment if I were to think, you know what, I'm not going to show up at the assembly today. And if nobody checks on me and says, hey, I loved you, I missed you, then phooey to that group of people. They don't love me or care about me. Would that be fair? Would that be a fair thought toward you? Or even a fair thought of how you are toward me? Jesus quotes another section of Deuteronomy in verse uh, 7. It's Deuteronomy 6.16 where Moses reflects on, uh, I think it's Masa or Mara. It's Exodus 17 where Israel complains about water that God's not providing for them. And it says they put God to the test saying, is God among us or not? It's like the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke is right there. God just brought you out of Egypt. Moses is there. Of course he's with you. But what they would do is they would have a need or a desire, and they would think, if God doesn't do this right now, then he's never loved us at all, and we should just die, and the relationship's over. Is it fair for any relationship to be built on that attitude? Is that a real working relationship at that point? So again, Jesus wouldn't seek assurance by exalting himself and disregarding God. He would seek his assurance by what God had already done what was already overwhelmingly evident. How can we know that God loves us? Is it for him to do everything we want him to do the moment we want him to do it? Or is what God has done in Jesus from the past sufficient enough to demonstrate that no matter what condition we may ever be in, God overwhelmingly, completely loves us? Where do we gain our assurance from? Jesus gained it from the assurance of scripture and from the past, who God was. And the temptation, I think, is to prove himself, gain reputation the wrong way. This is something I, I had missed for a long time, but I mean, they're at the pinnacle of the temple. Is that like a private location? This is a public place. And who's there? People who've come to worship God, the people that you would want to know who you are, right? So imagine the scene. Jesus jumps off in front of crowds of people, priests, Levites, reverent people who are there to worship God, and they see this man plummeting to his death, and angels rescue him in front of their eyes, put him on the ground safely. Voila. No doubt anymore, right? This is the Son of God. But was that God's way? Was that the way that Jesus would prove his identity to the crowds? Rather, Jesus denying this method meant he was going to suffer misunderstanding, mistreatment. The Pharisees, like Satan, were going to ask for visible signs. Show us a sign from heaven that you are who you are. If you are the Christ, come down from the cross and we will believe in you, right? Jesus would never prove himself through arrogance, self-exaltation. He wouldn't try to impress people or gain reputation the wrong way. And again, from Deuteronomy 6.16, you know, Jesus emphasizes not just, he doesn't just say no, right? That wouldn't be enough. What Jesus does is stand so firmly in the truth, not just of the right decision, but maintaining the right faith, the right attitude toward God. And it's scripture that shuts down the temptation both presently and in the future. To say no would not be enough. It's scripture that has the power to keep his attitude and faith in God pure. Eight through ten, and here we see Jesus' allegiance. We've seen his dependence, his confidence in God's care, and also now his allegiance to God. Verse eight, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only and this is again quoting Deuteronomy 6:13 then the devil left him and behold angels came and began to minister to him so satan does something very interesting here and i think there is something very supernatural about this he takes jesus to a very high mountain and i know this this may sound really crazy but I don't think Jesus had the strength to make a walk like that. So it seems like they just they got there somehow. And then showing him all the kingdoms of the world, I don't think he was pointing in the distance at things you can't see and saying, "Hey, hey, like north about 2000 miles there's China, you know, and I'll give that to you too." I think somehow he was visibly demonstrating bringing things to Jesus's view that he could see. He could see not only the kingdoms of the world, their glory, So I kind of imagine this like a movie, like things are just being presented before Jesus on this mountain. And I imagine, again, this was very, very overwhelming. And so I want you to think, did Jesus come to rule over all peoples? Yes, he did. So what is the temptation? First, I think with something Jesus did desire and something that God did send Jesus to obtain. Um, that, again, it was like taking the right thing the wrong way. And so I think Satan, first and foremost, was trying to visually overwhelm Jesus with something he desired and to provoke sensuality, which would be like, you know, he feels a desire and acts on the strength of that feeling. As strange as this may sound, I think this relates to sexual temptation in many ways. You know, I think God has given men and women desire he's given men and women desires even beyond sexual desire other desires right but there's ways where if we just let our feelings dictate our decisions can those desires become sinful where without maybe fully realizing it in the process of obtaining something that we could have in purity we're instead pledging our allegiance to the devil to get something that ultimately doesn't belong to us in that way and so I think it would be very visually enticing, very visually overwhelming. And when something is put in front of you, the power of the visual can just shake your mind where it's, it's harder to remember and think. So mind you, Jesus is weak. I imagine in the wilderness, a part of the temptation, again, this is just me thinking, that a part of the temptation was his exhaustion. So I don't imagine he slept well. I imagine he's very tired. I imagine he's pretty well able to be frustrated with how long this has been going on by Satan and how hard this is. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired. And yet, even still, with all of this visual overwhelming things, he still quotes scripture and won't give in. I think it's a temptation to rule over people without serving people. Become first without becoming last. You know, you can have the rule that you're seeking the easy way. And again, mind you, this could be a temptation of just bow to me this one time. You know, just this one time. You can do everything you want to do afterwards, but just this one time. How often with temptation do we think, God, just, just this one time. You'll forgive me afterward, I'll move on with my life, but this is what I need right now, it's what I have to do right now. Does it work that way? What if Jesus did bow down to Satan? how much would that have impacted? How much would that have impacted his relationship with people, with God? I don't know if all creation would have just collapsed collapsed in on itself and everything would just explode. I don't know. But Jesus' purity is the center of existence. It's the It's the reason for existence. I think we give ourselves too much of a free pass and we abuse God's mercy and we presume mercy is license and Jesus... Never treated God that way. Jesus would rule through service. Jesus would become first. He would rule over all by being the servant of all and giving his life as a ransom. And I think more than anything, this would plant a seed, that there's another easier way. Do you remember one of the most severe things Jesus ever said to anybody was Peter? Do you remember what Peter said when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? for you are not setting your interest on God's, but on man's. It was when Jesus was talking about his crucifixion and death, that he was going to be given to the Jewish leadership, he was going to be betrayed and crucified and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and he said, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus, to him, there's one way. It's a way paved with suffering, it's a way paved with abuse and mistreatment by the people that he loved the most. But Jesus would choose that way above the easier way, knowing that it is how God's will would be accomplished, it would be the vehicle for his love. And so I think just like temptation for us, sometimes it's not just the temptation of the moment, it's what can linger afterwards. And what we see with Jesus is when this would come up again, he would still refuse and refuse strongly. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Again, a reflection on Israel's time in the wilderness and preparing them to go in and conquer the promised land. And this is around a place where God is assuring Israel he will keep his promises. Nothing he said is going to fail. And he implores them, don't forget me. You're going to go on the land. It's going to be exactly what I said. Be careful. Don't forget me. Worship God. Serve him only. Even if for Jesus, again, it meant a path of suffering and abuse and mistreatment and even at the cross when it seems like everything that Jesus had worked for had failed and collapsed. He would still say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so again, How does Jesus overcome temptation? Quoting scripture. It's one just reflection from Jesus' time in the wilderness. Jesus shows us the importance and the utility of scripture in a way that I think nobody else really ever had to this degree. So John, to illustrate this, he started his own handyman business. He's got like a trailer with a lot of tools in it. And imagine if John spent the money... To buy me all the tools that he has what would i do with those things i would just put them away you know i don't really have room for them but i would just let them sit imagine if he gave me books and linked me to youtube videos you say hey hey here's gonna you know these are gonna help you learn how to use these tools so you can you know start using them and you know help people and do projects i wouldn't watch them i wouldn't read the books because it's just not relevant for me right there's no reason for me to do those things I think that's oftentimes how we treat God's word. God has given us the greatest, most important, valuable tool. And as we've said many, many times in our classes and sermons, it's not just about gaining knowledge. God's word is the most important tool of our lives. And I think we neglect it when we don't understand its value and what it is for and how often we need it. So I just want to encourage you with something that I brought up in a lesson months ago on elders and where are we now in getting to the point of an eldership. And I mentioned um, thinking about one scripture that you can see is relevant, that you could memorize, that you could pray about, that you could seek application for from God. Jesus had memorized these scriptures. I think Jesus understood these were going to be needed relevant scriptures for his life and he was not going to survive the wilderness without them we're not going to survive parenting if we don't memorize some scriptures about parenting we're not going to survive marriage if we don't memorize some scriptures about marriage we're not going to work through trials the right way unless we memorize some scriptures that deal with trials and i'm not i'm not trying to be overwhelming like that we need to like memorize the bible i'm just saying again that i would really encourage you to have one scripture that you know deals with something you struggle with, that you need help with. Memorize that scripture and realize that God's word has power. Jesus memorized these scriptures because they alone had the power to equip him to deal with this. That was the most important thing in his life. There's nothing more important than learning how to use God's word effectively to serve each other, to serve God, and to work through this life while growing into the glory of God. So that's the sermon for this morning. I appreciate um, your patience so much in um, the sermon, and I just hope that this could equip us all to grow closer to God. And if there's anyone here who sees their need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, to bring anything forward, whether it be confession of sin or just a need for help from the brethren to fight spiritual battles, whatever it is, please bring it forward we stand and sing the invitation song.